Part 2, Chapter 26 of The Patrician by John Galsworthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part 2, Chapter 26 By the river, the west wind, whose murmuring had visited Courtier and Milton the night before, was bringing up the first sky of autumn. Slow creeping and fleecy grey, the clouds seemed trying to overpower a sun that shone but fitfully even thus early in the day. While Audrey Noel was dressing, sunbeams danced desperately on the white wall like little lost souls with no tomorrow, or gnats that wheel and wheel in brief joy, leaving no footmarks on the air. Through the chinks of a side window covered by a dark blind, some smoky filaments of light were tethered to the back of her mirror. Compounded of trembling grey spirals, so thick to the eye that her hand felt astonishment when it failed to grasp them, and so jealous as ghosts of the space they occupied, they brought a moment's distraction to a heart not happy. For well, how could she be happy? Her lover away from her now thirty hours, without having overcome with his last kisses the feeling of disaster which had settled on her when he told her of his resolve. Her eyes had seen deeper than his. Her instinct had received a message from fate. To be the dragger down, the destroyer of his usefulness, to be not the helpmate, but the clog, not the inspiring sky, but the cloud, and because of a scruple which she could not understand. She had no anger with that unintelligible scruple, but her fatalism and her sympathy had followed it out into his future. Things being so, it could not be long before he felt that her love was maiming him. Even if he went on desiring her, it would be only with his body. And if, for this scruple, he were capable of giving up his public life, he would be capable of living on with her after his love was dead. This thought she could not bear. It stung to the very marrow of her nerves. And yet surely life could not be so cruel as to have given her such happiness, meaning to take it from her. Surely her love was not to be only one summer's day, his love but an embrace, and then forever nothing. This morning, fortified by despair, she admitted her own beauty. He would... He must want her more than that other life, at the very thought of which her face darkened. That other life so hard and far from her, so loveless, formal, and yet to him so real, so desperately, accursedly real. He must indeed give up his career, and then surely the life they could live together would make up to him, a life among simple and sweet things, all over the world with music and pictures and the flowers and all nature, and friends who sought them for themselves, and in being kind to everyone, and helping the poor and the unfortunate, and loving each other. But he did not want that sort of life. What was the good of pretending that he did? It was right and natural he should want to use his powers, to lead and serve. She would not have him otherwise. With these thoughts hovering and darting within her, she went on twisting and coiling her dark hair and burying her heart beneath its lace defences. She noted, too, with her usual care, two fading blossoms in the bowl of flowers on her dressing table, and removing them, emptied out the water and refilled the bowl. Before she left her bedroom, the sunbeams had already ceased to dance. The grey filaments of light were gone. Autumn sky had come into its own. Passing the mirror in the hall, which was always rough with her, 
she had not courage to glance at it. Then, suddenly, a woman's belief in the power of her charm came to her aid. She felt almost happy. Surely he must love her better than his conscience. That confidence was very tremulous, ready to yield to the first rebuff. Even the friendly, fresh-cheeked maid seemed that morning to be regarding her with compassion, and all the innate sense, not of good form, but a form which made her shrink from anything that should disturb or hurt another, or make anyone think she was to be pitied, rose up at once within her. She became more than ever careful to show nothing, even to herself. So she passed the morning, mechanically doing the little usual things. An overpowering longing was with her all the time, to get him away with her from England, and see whether the thousand beauties she could show him would not fire him with love of the things she loved. As a girl, she had spent nearly three years abroad, and Eustace had never been to Italy, nor to her beloved mountain valleys. Then the remembrance of his rooms at the temple broke in on that vision, and shattered it. No Titian's feast of gentian, tawny brown, and alpen rose could intoxicate the lover of those books, those papers, that great map. And the scent of leather came to her now as poignantly as if she were once more flitting about noiselessly on her business of nursing. Then there rushed through her again the warm, wonderful sense that had been with her all those precious days, of love that knew secretly of its approaching triumph and fulfilment, the delicious sense of giving every minute of her time every thought and movement, and all the sweet, unconscious waiting for the divine, irrevocable moment when at last she would give herself and be his. The remembrance, too, of how tired, how sacredly tired she had been, and of how she had smiled all the time with her inner joy of being tired for him. The sound of the bell startled her. His telegram had said, The afternoon. She determined to show nothing of the trouble darkening the whole world for her, and drew a deep breath, waiting for his kiss. It was not Milton, but Lady Casterly. The shock sent the blood buzzing into her temples. Then she noticed that the little figure before her was also trembling. Drawing up a chair, she said, Won't you sit down? The tone of that old voice, thanking her, brought back sharply the memory of her garden at Monkland, bathed in the sweetness and shimmer of summer, and of Barbara standing at her gate, towering above this little figure, which now sat there so silent, with very white face. Those carved features, those keen, yet veiled eyes, had too often haunted her thoughts. They were like a bad dream come true. My grandson is not here, is he? Audrey shook her head. We have heard of his decision. I will not beat about the bush with you. It is a disaster for me, a calamity. I have known and loved him since he was born, and I have been foolish enough to dream dreams about him. I wonder perhaps whether you knew how much we counted on him. You must forgive an old woman's coming here like this. At my age there are few things that matter, but they matter very much. And Audrey thought, But at my age there is but one thing that matters, and that matters worse than death. She did not speak. To whom, to what should she speak? To this hard old woman who personified the world? Of what use, words? I can say to you, 
went on the voice of the little figure that seemed so to fill the room with its great presence, what I could not bring myself to say to others, for you are not hard-hearted. A quiver passed from the heart so praised to the still lips. No, she was not hard-hearted. She could even feel for this old woman from whose voice anxiety had stolen its despotism. Eustace cannot live without his career. His career is himself. He must be doing and leading and spending his powers. What he has given you is not his true self. I don't want to hurt you, but the truth is the truth, and we must all bow before it. I may be hard, but I can respect sorrow. Respect sorrow? Yes, this grey visitor could do that, as the wind passing over the sea respects its surface, as the air respects the surface of a rose. But to penetrate to the heart, to understand her sorrow, that old age could not do for youth. As well try to track out the secret of the twistings and the flight of those swallows out there, above the river, or to follow to its source the faint scent of the lilies in that bowl. How should she know what was passing in here, this little old woman whose blood was cold? And Audrey had the sensation of watching someone pelt her with the rind and husks of what her own spirit had long devoured. She had a longing to get up and take the hand, the chill, spidery hand of age, and thrust it into her breast, and say, Feel that, and cease. But with all, she never lost her queer, dull compassion for the owner of that white, carved face. It was not her visitor's fault that she had come. Again Lady Castle was speaking. It is early days. If you do not end it now, at once, it will only come harder on you presently. You know how determined he is. He will not change his mind. If you cut him off from his work in life, it will but recoil on you. I can only expect your hatred for talking like this, but believe me, it's for your good as well as his in the long run. A tumultuous heart-beating of ironical rage seized on the listener to that speech. Her good? The good of a course that the breath is just abandoning. The good of a flower beneath a heel. The good of an old dog whose master leaves it for the last time. Slowly, a weight like lead stopped all that fluttering of her heart. If she did not end it at once. The words had now been spoken that for so many hours she knew had lain unspoken within her own breast. Yes, if she did not, she could never know a moment's peace, feeling that she was forcing him to a death in life, desecrating her own love and pride. The spur had been given by another. The thought that someone, this hard old woman of the hard world, should have shaped in words the hauntings of her love and pride through all those ages since Milton spoke to her of his resolve, that someone else should have had to tell her what her own heart had so long known it must do, this stabbed her like a knife. This, at all events, she could not bear. She stood up and said, Please leave me now. I have a great many things to do before I go. With a sort of pleasure, she saw a look of bewilderment cover that old face. With a sort of pleasure, she marked the trembling of the hands raising their owner from the chair and heard the stammering in her voice. You are going? But before he comes, you won't be seeing him again? With a sort of pleasure, she marked the hesitation, which did not know whether to thank or bless or just say nothing and creep away. With a sort of pleasure, she watched the flush mount in the faded cheeks, 
and faded lips pressed together. Then, at the scarcely whispered words, Thank you, my dear, turned, unable to bear further sight or sound. She went to the window and pressed her forehead against the glass, trying to think of nothing. She heard the sound of wheels. Lady Castley had gone. And then, of all the awful feelings man or woman can know, she experienced the worst. She could not cry. At this most bitter and deserted moment of her life, she felt strangely calm, foreseeing clearly, exactly what she must do and where to go. Quickly it must be done, or it would never be done. Quickly, and without fuss. Put some things together, sent the maid out for a cab, and sat down to write. He must do and say nothing that could excite him and bring back his illness. Let it all be sober, reasonable. It would be easy to let him know where she was going, to write a letter that would bring him flying after her. But to write the calm, reasonable words that would keep him waiting and thinking, till he never again came to her, broke her heart. When she had finished and sealed the letter, she sat motionless with a numb feeling in hands and brain, trying to realise what she had next to do. To go. And that was all. Her trunks had been taken down already. She chose the little hat that he liked her best in, and over it fastened her thickest veil. Then, putting on her travelling coat and gloves, she looked in the long mirror, and seeing that there was nothing more to keep her, lifted her dressing bag and went down. Over on the embankment a child was crying, and the passionate screaming sound, broken by the gulping of tears, made her cover her lips as though she had heard her own escaped soul wailing out there. She leaned out of the cab to say to the maid, Go and comfort that crying Ella. Only when she was alone in the train, secure from all eyes, did she give way to desperate weeping. The white smoke rolling past the windows was not more evanescent than her joy had been, for she had no illusions. It was over. From first to last, not quite a year. But even at this moment, not for all the world would she have been without her love, gone to its grave, like a dead child that evermore would be touching her breast with its wistful fingers. End of Part 2 Chapter 26